there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. If you're interested in the environment, especially in water conservation, or perhaps you're more interested in entrepreneurship, or maybe you'd like some tips for how to leverage your love of singing to get a high-profile job in government, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is a serial entrepreneur who has worked across multiple industries, the latest one of which is focused on the water supply chain in the energy industry. But before I introduce you to Joshua Adler, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays with an exclusive peek at the guests we're going to be featuring that week. Please head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org and sign up. Now, my H2O lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of a delicious caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my brilliant next guest is Joshua Adler, a successful entrepreneur, angel investor, and veteran dealmaker who has founded energy, real estate, medical technology, and internet companies and served as a senior U.S. economic policy official for President George W. Bush. Josh is currently the founding chief executive of SourceWater, the online marketplace and data hub for water in the energy ecosystem, which he conceived of while he was at MIT and in the Energy Ventures program in the business school there. Josh, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am. I'm now through my second mug, Ooh. so I'm fully caffeinated. All right. <laughs> so the so you're firing on all pistons. Yeah. All right, Josh, let us pivot from coffee to water because that's your latest business, Source Water, and it's been built all around it. And not just any water. This is wastewater, right? Yes, that's right. And this source water started from an idea I had when I was a Sloan fellow at MIT in a program there called Energy Ventures. Sloan fellows are mid-career business students at MIT who can basically do whatever classes they want. And I stumbled into the Energy Ventures program and I'd like to tell you it was because of my focus and direction and brilliance that I chose that. But in reality, it's because before I arrived at MIT, the program office advised us that there was a very popular class called Energy Ventures that was application only. And if we wanted the chance to be in it, we had to apply before arriving because otherwise we'd miss the deadline. And I said, well, anything that's so popular that you have to compete to get in, I want to be in that. And so <laughs> so I applied for it because I didn't want to miss the chance. And then I managed to talk my way into it with the director of the program. And so they, well, I guess I better do it. They let me in. So I, actually, yeah. if I could just interject here before we get into how you conceived of source water, if you could please explain to our listeners what source water is and what it does. Yes. And doing that requires a little background because where it is now is not where it started. 
but still addresses the same market and opportunity. For those who have not heard of hydraulic fracturing, aka fracking, less politely, this is a method of oil and gas development that really took off in 2009 in the U.S. It's not that much different from the traditional methods of oil and gas development, except that it involves using and also generating large volumes of water. This is all basically new to the industry in the last 10 years. And my basic insight was anything gets this big, this fast, whatever is new about it, there's going to be a big opportunity there. And it turns out that with all the water that gets used and then gets generated by this energy development process, the best thing you can do with it is take the wastewater from the process and reuse it or recycle it into the next well and the next well and basically create this loop of recycling the water because it turns out the water quality doesn't really matter that much for the reuse recycling purposes. And so this is both economically and environmentally your best option, as long as the timing and location work out and you get into all kinds of complicated stuff there. My original idea was to create an online marketplace for water for the energy industry, kind of like Airbnb for water. I've got extra. Maybe you need some. Rather than throwing mine away, I'll send it to you. Maybe next time you've got some and I need some. Creating that visibility and allowing companies to trade with each other and be much more efficient in where they get it and where they send it. We did create that. What we found was companies in the industry started using our platform a lot but they weren't using it to trade. They were using it to research. What we realized from that is the industry is actually at such an early stage of visibility into and, and understanding water as a commodity that they're not ready yet to do online trading. They're not going to one click to buy. They're still going to want to go see it, inspect it, test it. They got to build a pipelines or send trucks. This is a, a mission critical element of their whole process. And so they need to be really, really confident in whoever's on the other side of that transaction, whether it's buying or selling or recycling, whatever it is, for a whole bunch of reasons. And so they're not just going to trust that something they see on screen from some internet company is what's really going to happen for supplying their mission critical tens, hundreds of millions, billions of dollar investments that rely on getting this water in and getting it out. They valued what we built as a data service, but not necessarily as a trading marketplace. Not yet. It's going there. We're still on a journey as far as the changes in the industry and developing the industry. And so what source water is today, we do have that marketplace. And there's thousands of companies on that marketplace with their listings of water availability and water needs. But the primary way that companies use source water is as a geospatial data service for viewing, analyzing, understanding the availability, supply and demand, price, quality, everything about water in the upstream energy industry. And so what they're getting is a big, fancy, high-speed, high-performing map on their screen that has everything about water on it 
all the availability and where it is and where it's going and where it came from and what the pressure levels are and volumes are and what's coming in the future and going back decades into the past. And they can use that to analyze and plan and find either business opportunities if they're selling services related to water or plan and budget for their operations if they're somebody who is using or generating water and underwriting water-related investments because the companies that own and operate water facilities, whether that's disposal or treatment or production or pipelines or recycling, not only do they make those investments, but then the companies that invest in them, like the private equity investors, they need ways to due diligence, meaning confirm the reality of things that are told to them. They need ways to independently due diligence these types of investments and need ways to underwrite, basically plan out the finances of those investments. And we have built what turns out to be the only source for that kind of information. And so there's this whole emergent water infrastructure industry that is bigger than energy. I mean, it's it's a whole emerging area. And what we've built is today the only system that gives all these different kinds of companies the ability to see what the heck is going on out there and make plans around it with respect to all the water supply and demand markets and infrastructure. Gotcha. Gotcha. Thank you for that. During our Espresso Shots episode, which we recorded prior to this episode, and I would suggest to our listeners, if they want to get a sense of how to break into this industry, check out the show notes for this episode to see if the Espresso Shots episode has already been released. You said, Josh, that a couple of the qualities that you look for in the entry level folks that you hire at Source Water are grit if they've been through adversity and the idea that they would be loyal. And we had a longer conversation at the end of the interview about how that has also been true for you with Source Water in terms of the industry itself, which you described as being somewhat tribal. So this isn't your first what do you call it? Rodeo, I guess, since you're in Texas, you're in Houston. You've been an entrepreneur in multiple industries. What do you think one of the lessons that you've learned has been about how you go into a new industry as an entrepreneur and the value of being open and listening and pivoting? How common is it? that the idea that you have in the beginning is in fact the idea that remains true through the number of years it takes before you take off? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one for which there is, I think, no perfect answer. It is a balance because it is impossible to succeed with any new product or new concept without really constant and sharp listening to the customer. At the same time, you would never enter that space in the first place or create that product or service in the first place if you didn't have a clear vision for what it should be and the desire to create it and the ability to persist through constant rejection and disagreement with that vision 
from your customers and certainly from investors as well. And so there's this inherent conflict to creating anything new where obviously, why is it not there already, right? If it was so great, it would already be here, you know? <laughs> and that's always true. And so um, particularly- Except when it isn't. It, well, but finding that out, that's a big mistake that beginner entrepreneurs think is that I'm going to build this amazing thing. I'm going to build the amazing diorama in my shoebox. And then when I lift the napkin from in front of it and people see what's in there, their eyes are going to explode and they're going to throw money. That is incredibly wrong. And so you do have to have this like great vision that you're excited about. But whatever is going to come out the other end is going to look nothing like what the original vision was. I mean, usually not. And it's going to take so much longer because the idea is 1% of the success. And everything else that goes along the way, including this list of the customers being wrong, being willing to be wrong, but at the same time, balancing that feedback with the understanding that by far, most users, particularly in the business and industry world, are inherently biased towards rejecting anything new. They've been doing things a certain way for a long time. That's the way their company does it. Most people in most businesses are not rewarded in any way for doing something new. And why would they? All of their motivation is around the downside risk. They're not the owner of the company in most cases. They don't want to lose their job. They don't want to be embarrassed. They don't want to see their performance reduced. As long as they keep doing the same things they've been doing the way they've been doing them, they really can't be criticized. If they take the step of doing something new, they're taking a big risk. And what's their reward for that risk? To look smart, to make a tiny bit more money for their company, but you know, not for themselves. The rewards are very small and the risks are very large. And so they're always going to give you some amount of rejection early on, usually a lot. And so you're getting this feedback from the customers and you know, you're kind of searching, you're searching, you're searching, not just for the right fit and right idea, but for the individuals who are a little more open-minded, who are a little more encouraging, who are willing to give it a try. If you do this, if you do this, if you jump through that hoop, if you show that you're really serious and committed, because they sure as heck aren't going to spend their time and take a risk on their end if they aren't totally confident that you're really in this for the long haul, because they know more than you do how many people have come and gone who had the next great thing, who are nowhere to be found now because they couldn't make it. And so they're giving you feedback, but they're also testing you. And all through that process, you have to keep your vision in mind and persist in that. But you also have to be constantly shifting and responding and evaluating. Was this feedback from one random person who's kind of a kook and isn't representing anything? Or was this feedback something that's telling me something important that we really should adjust or even completely change direction on? And those twists and turns and bumps and redirections, that's that journey. And it takes much longer and takes you in stranger directions and is much more difficult than you anticipate than anyone ever anticipates when they first come up with this amazing idea that's going to change the world. <laughs> and that's where the, like, the amazing idea that's going to change the world is from like a couple of weeks of thinking about things or one like really great cappuccino or something. You know, you're sitting there and say, wow, this has been my experience again and again. And I still keep making the same mistake, which is when I first had the idea for 
source water. It really was like a eureka moment. I'd gotten really interested in this energy space. I'd gotten really interested in the water space, a bunch of different aspects. I won't take you through all, but I was at MIT. There are a lot of opportunities, a lot of things I could be doing. And the big picture was, I'm like, I know there's something here because this is like a huge new industry spending hundreds of billions of dollars a year and it's new and it's exploding. And this is the water is the new thing about it. And so there just has to be an opportunity here to solve big problems and create a great business. I'm not sure what it is, but I know that when you combine those things, there's something there. I just need to find it. And I was actually sitting in a coffee shop in Cambridge talking to a woman who was a grad student at MIT about some work she was doing, optimizing water logistics for these energy operations. And I just remember I was sitting there, it was in a COSI. I don't even know if they have COSIs anymore. They but do. I was, across from the, okay. <laughs> I was sitting across from the COSI and I was like, wait a minute. You're talking about how they time and move the water around their operations and how to optimize that. But how do they know where to get the water from in the first place? How do they know where to send it? Is there some kind of market where they see who's got water and what the price is? And she was like, no, I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, I can do that with the Internet. And so <laughs> from there, it was like, yeah, I researched it. And I was like, no, there's nothing like that. But water is clearly the major commodity in this business. How can there not be a commodity market? And what I love about this, Josh, because I'm going to want to ask you about your time in college in a few minutes, but suffice it to say, you weren't an environmental engineering major or even an environmental studies major. Oh, yeah. No, I didn't know anything about it. <laughs> and, you know, and that came up again and again in the energy. It's, it's such an interesting trade-off between being an insider who can't see the forest for the trees and being an outsider who sees the trees but has no idea, like, what's in the forest. And I was very much on the far outside, but also had such diverse experiences that I would think about combining things in a novel way, in a way that almost no one in the industry had. So I would then start giving these presentations at industry conferences and talking to people. And first, it was like a little hard for them to understand. What do you mean a marketplace for water? Like, <laughs> what, what does that even, how do those words even go together? Are you talking about bottled water? What do you mean? And, but I find, <laughs> and it was that's, just like, I find yeah. that so interesting because there are markets for all kinds of commodities, including, as I read in one article, the sand that yeah. is used in the fracking industry or in the oil and gas industry. So why wouldn't there be a market for water? Well, and I'll say the sand is a more recent thing, and I'm not sure anybody's really using that marketplace yet. But it's, that's come more recently, and it's still at, a, I'd say, an earlier stage than we're at. It is strange, but it has a lot to do with the job functional roles of the people you're dealing with. Because in the energy industry, there are whole marketing and trading departments for trading the products of the process, whether it's oil or natural gas or other kinds of petrochemical outputs. They're constantly trading these things and marking them and setting prices and moving them around. But that's on the marketing side of these big companies on the way other end with totally different kinds of people who have completely different backgrounds. What we're dealing with is the supply chain side, the inputs at the very, 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 very beginning of this massive industrial supply chain. And for that, there are no online marketplaces of any kind. And they're not, the people who are doing that work are 
engineers, they're operations engineers, completions engineers, production engineers. They're engineers. They think like engineers. They've trained as engineers. They're not traders. They're not marketers. They're not deal makers. And they never think that way. The idea of a of an efficient marketplace where trading would happen on the input side of the industry, not on the output side, is completely novel. And so you would think, you know, you'd say, hey, you use Expedia to book your hotels. You use Airbnb to book a room. You use, you know, Yelp to figure out which restaurant to go to. Why not use an online marketplace to figure out where you're going to get your water from or where you're going to send your water to? That's like, what? (laughs) That's not how it works. I tell my land team to talk to the guy who owns the land where our equipment's located and they hammer out some kind of deal. And then he tells me it's okay to drill a water well. And I hire a crew to drill a water well and we pump the water out and we use that. At what point in that process would I be looking on a marketplace? (laughs) You know, that, yeah. But knowing what I know about you, Josh, and and obviously it's still somewhat limited, we've already done the Espresso Shots interview, but I did hear you say that while you were still in college, your high school buddy, who was at a different college, had the idea of selling flowers online and maybe selling books, a particular type of books, and you dissed him for that. And the next year, Amazon was created. But I think that might have been somewhere in the recesses of your brain. Well, I'm always trying to listen for there's this balance of listening for the new opportunity and focusing on what you're doing. And mostly you have to be focused unless you're in pure search mode. Because you have to understand the risk investment trade-offs when you're making a decision to do something, which is just taking the example of source water. After I had the original idea, that aha moment of source water, I thought, yeah, I should be able to just hire a bunch of an offshore contractor who does websites, build this thing in six months, invest a few hundred thousand dollars in doing that. And within 12 to 18 months, I'll know whether people use it you know, whether it works. That concept of the lean startup, fail fast, test things out. Yep. And here we are basically like six plus years since those thoughts. And it's only in the last six months that I can say we've definitively obtained product market fit where lots of people are buying what we're selling for real money very quickly. Along the way, It was not six months and a few hundred thousand dollars. It's been six years and many, many millions of dollars, mid seven figures to get to where we are, where there's real traction. And that's true with anything. It's not just this. It takes so much more time and investment and process to get to that product market fit. It's one thing when you're doing a consumer product. They're the equivalent of an Instagram or Facebook. Those are super hard to be successful in because it's incredibly low probability because there's so much competition, both on the product side and that the whole world of people, everybody's attention is constantly being assaulted and sapped and distracted. And to get that needle in the haystack 
through to the other side. I don't know what kind of metaphor that is, but is, <laughs> is just incredibly low probability. But maybe you get this kind of lucky viral situation and maybe you're able to capitalize it. And that's incredibly rare. But when it happens, you read about it because you're like, wow, they won the lottery. When you're on the business to business or industrial side of any kind of product, but especially a new product, new market, which is this lean startup, four steps, the epiphany sort of concept, right? Which is a new thing that no one's ever bought before in a market that people don't really understand and where there's no alternatives. So they aren't already buying something similar and you're going to them and saying, hey, you're already buying a cell phone. You, you've already had a bunch of cell phones. I'm going to give you a cell phone that has a bigger screen or I'm going to give you a cell phone that has a better camera. And there people say, well, I was going to buy a cell phone anyway. Maybe I'm willing to pay a little more or do something a little different to get this little bit better one. When you're coming out with something that no one's ever bought anything like it before, they're not going to just say, oh, yes, I have to have that. There's this very lengthy, I mean, years and years of process where you have to educate people on why is it better and they have to test it out and they have to trust you and they have to trust the product and they have to start making a commitment to change their organization and get dozens or even hundreds of people to agree that this is a change they should make, even if the cost of it is $10,000 a year to a company that makes billions of dollars a year. You might think going in, if you haven't been in that type of organization, this company makes billions of dollars a year. I'm going to sell them something that costs $1,000 a month. It's nothing. They'll just sign up because who cares? You know, <laughs> they'll, just, they'll give it a try. And if it's awesome, they'll love it. And they'll buy a whole bunch more. Getting that first $1,000 out of that billion dollar company is going to take you five years. It has nothing to do with the relative. It's all the stuff that has to change to get the trust and buy-in and commitment from a giant organization where hundreds of people need to agree before they do anything differently from the way it's been done before. Oh my gosh. Wow. So what I didn't ask you is about, yes, you majored in economics at Yale with a concentration in Chinese studies. What I haven't asked you, Josh, is about any extracurriculars that you were involved in during school that in hindsight may have helped you hone various skills that were useful to you once you got out into the working world? And if I may make this a leading question, didn't the Whiff and Poof singing group, the acapella singing group that's extremely famous that Yale has, didn't that lead to pretty good things in terms of opportunity? that you made for yourself to go into government? Yes, and prior, I would say. So at Yale, my main activities were running my business during the day and singing in acapella groups and musical theater by night, and not a whole lot of classwork. The acapella and singing part was an amazing experience. And I was in a group called the Yale Alley Cats, which is a men's acapella group. And then I kind of graduated into the Yale Whiff and Poofs, which is like the senior group, the all-male acapella group. It's not all-male anymore. A bit at the time was an all-male acapella group at Yale. That's the oldest college acapella group in the country. It's over 100 years old now. And you literally travel the world. I mean, physically go around the circumference of the earth <laughs> singing concerts that pay for your travel. And so my 
Alley Cat and Whiff experiences were my first opportunities to travel outside the U.S. I'd never been outside the U.S. before. I got to go all over Europe and then all over Asia and all over the place with concert tickets, paying for these trips, with traveling with my best friends, getting to just have ridiculous experiences. Like the thing about the Pitch Perfect movies, which I think were inspired by that type of experience and make great friends and also get exposure to people and places that I never would have imagined. I mean, just being a kind of middle-class suburban kid from DC who went to a public school, the kinds of people and places that we went just blew my mind. And for most of the people in the group, it's like, wow, there's places like this and people like this and we're hanging out with them. And one of them was George H.W. Bush. Yes, that is, that is quite true. The summer before my senior year, we were preparing for our school year with a retreat. And we had an opportunity to spend the day with President George Herbert Walker Bush and his family at their main estate. As it turns out, President Bush, 41, both of his brothers and also his father were members of the Whiffenpoofs. Now, the late President Bush, I learned by standing next to him all singing, couldn't carry a tune and wasn't himself a member of the Wiffen Poofs. Okay. But there was a family connection to it. And we were there for the day, had a great time, you know, had a big lobster feast, of course, sang some songs, got to meet the president. When does that happen? <laughs> and one of the key skills that I learned in the acapella life and really made the most of was I really tried to go meet and talk to the people who were hosting us for concerts. A lot of the guys didn't do that. A lot of the guys were happy to hang out with each other and have a good time and do whatever activities they were doing. But a few of us, you know, myself included, really made a point of trying to meet the people who were hosting us, whatever it was, and find out, what do you do? And what is this? And how did you get here? And that was really important for a whole bunch of reasons later on in terms of that network, because we had exposure to people and things that I never would have had exposure to. And it would have kind of come and gone if I hadn't reached out to people along the way. I had a a bit of a maybe an inclination and advantage there. I was our MC. So I had been nominated to be the guy who walks out and tells the jokes and stories and introduces the songs in between the songs. And I really loved that job. In some ways, that's the best job I ever had. And I uh, was felt very honored to be trusted by my peers to speak for them in all kinds of circumstances with presidents and heads of state and corporate CEOs and little kids at, you know, a charity school or an old folks home or whatever it was. But that was a great honor for me and a lot of trust and really helped develop my confidence in speaking in front of people. I've been a debater in high school. I already had some of that, but this really took it to another level. Speaking at hundreds of concerts over the course of those years in front of sometimes crowds of 10,000 plus people and just again and again, sometimes 10 people, sometimes teenagers, sometimes old folks, sometimes politicians and whatever, just all kinds of audiences. And that practice was incredibly valuable. And so the combination of the networking opportunities that I tried to take full advantage of from these events and the skills and confidence from having so many public speaking opportunities under pressure led to 
a lot of opportunities and connections later. One of those was when I was in Dallas in end of 2001 and unemployed and didn't know really what I was going to do with myself. I had applied to some business schools. I then in January 2002, I got like the first three responses from business schools were all rejection letters. And so I wasn't getting in. There were a lot of people applying for business school in those days because the whole dot-com crash and there's a lot of unemployment. A lot of young people like myself at the time trying to figure out what the heck to do with themselves. It wasn't just me. <laughs> so right. I was rejected by like three business schools in a row. But one kind of real long shot opportunity I had was I had a, a friend who, a very good friend, who had gone to work for the George W. Bush administration in the early days of it. And he had mentioned to me, he was working at the Treasury Department, and he had mentioned to me, he's like, they're looking for a speechwriter for the Treasury Secretary. And, you know, is that something that you'd be interested in? I was like, yeah, that would be amazing. You know, I, I, like, I'm like the kid who wrote book reports about Alexander Hamilton and the founding of the Federal Reserve, and I love that stuff. <laughs> and he's like, well, you know, send me your resume. And, you know, six months had gone by with nothing. And, you know, I checked in with him once in a while, like, hey, anything going on with that? And he's like, nah, nothing. This stuff's all black box. You know, your resume's in there with probably a thousand others, and you know, I'll let you know. Meanwhile, you've got to pay the bills. <laughs> well, yeah. And so I was like, yeah, my fallback is, I hope I get in business school somewhere. Because otherwise, I really don't know what I'm doing. During that time, I was like, well, what can I do to improve my chances of getting this job? And I reached out to a bunch of different people. And you know, I was fortunate to have the Yale network that I was plugged into because of that with and proof experience where there were people, people, other people in the group, people who knew people or whatever it was. You're saying, like, what can I do to kind of get to people who make these decisions and let them know, I'm here, I'm really interested. I reached out after September 11th. When myself and I think everybody else was feeling very patriotic, I sent a letter to the office of President George Herbert Walker Bush, 41, saying, you know, I'd really like to contribute in any way that I can. And pretty good writer. I'm pretty good with communicating. And maybe you, you probably don't remember, but I was the MC for the whiffs at, at your house. And I've got some pretty good communication skills, written and, and oral. Is there some way that I could contribute to your son's administration in some kind of communications or, or writing capacity? And if there's some way for me to help, I'd love to do that. And by the way, here's some samples of published articles that I've written about topics in economics and regulation and healthcare and other stuff. These, I think, are pretty compatible with policy positions that Bush 43's administration might take. I got a letter back pretty quickly from the chief of staff for the former president's office saying something along the lines of President Bush 41, as you may know, does not intervene in the decisions of his son's administration. However, he's passed along uh, your information with a note indicating his high regard for you to the appropriate people who make those decisions. I was like, wow, <laughs> if the president of the United States has high regard for me, <laughs> how did that happen? Mid-January of 2001, I think probably while I was sitting in my bathrobe eating an omelet, at my little house in Dallas, I had a call from the White House liaison for the Treasury Department who said, we'd like to bring you in for some interviews. 
And I talked to my friend there and he said, wear a Navy suit with no lines, no patches or stripes, just solid Navy, wear a white shirt, wear a solid dark red tie. Really? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Come on up here. We're going to take you through all these interviews for a day. I came up and had a whole bunch of interviews at the Treasury Department at the White House. Another week or two went by, and then I got a call from the White House liaison who said, you know, President George W. Bush would like to offer you the position of speechwriter to the U.S. Treasury Secretary. They were like, so when do you think you can start? And I'm like, tomorrow. But I think that is a metaphor for life. Life is a series of ups and downs. And when you're in a down, just keep the faith. Things are going to improve. Josh, I have one final time for coffee question for you. If you could go back to Yale and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? A few things. One is I would have been more conventional and hardworking in my school course selections. And I give this advice to other people who go, which is like probably most people who get into Yale. I thought I was so smart. And I thought, I'm not, I don't need to take these traditional classes. They give you a lot of freedom to choose pretty much whatever you want to take there. And so I picked a whole bunch of random classes and things that seemed interesting, like film studies and linguistics. And, you know, I don't know what. I did kind of wish that I had just focused on the core and certainly worked a lot harder in classes and not spent as much time socializing and partying. There's plenty of time for that. And it's easy to say now, I was probably too far on the having a good time side and not enough on the classes and working side. The other thing that I would give myself the advice of this comes again and again, and I give it to anybody who is young and thinks they're really smart, which is be proud to look dumb. The problem that a lot of smart people have, especially if they've had early success in academic and competitive things and test scores and all this stuff like I did is you think you're so smart that you know the answers to things without really having to ask. You don't know because the world and the way things are is much more complicated and different than the model that you create in your mind for how things work and why. And the model in your mind does not match reality. And so the real process of being smart is the ability to constantly challenge your own assumptions, recognize them as your own assumptions, and be willing to look dumb because you're asking simple or dumb-seeming questions again and again, rather than, particularly in an environment like Yale, or probably most people's early college experience, where it's like, I want to look like the smartest kid, the best. And so I'm going to look like I know what the answers are. I'm not going to ask questions, or I'm going to ask something that's really complicated and abstract to show how smart I am, when I don't really understand the fundamentals. Or the, I think I do, but I don't want to look like I don't. You actually don't understand. And so I was somebody who would sit in front of the class, but sit in the front of the class and just and ask dumb questions because if you don't know the answer, probably very few other people do either. And they're all pretending to know and they don't. And so the only way that you really learn and get better and actually realize your potential is by admitting ignorance 
And don't worry about people judging you because you look ignorant or you look dumb because you're asking dumb, simple questions and aren't pretending to understand the whole thing like you were so smart and picked it up on the first day. And everybody else is going to be going, wow, how does that person have so much confidence that they're willing to ask these dumb questions when everybody else is pretending to look smart mm. and, you know, acting like they're smart? And that's how you actually learn. And as an entrepreneur, that's when you really have that experience. Because if you go in with your vision of how you're going to change the world, customers and other people's experience be damned, 999 times out of 1,000, it's going to be a disaster. And you are going to fail. And so you go in with the vision, but then you have to be constantly challenging yourself. You have to be willing to be wrong again and again, and not view that as an affront to your self-confidence or self-worth that you were wrong. You were totally wrong. You were way off. Oh my God, you're an idiot. You have to say, this is good for me because I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly getting better. It doesn't matter that I'm wrong about all these things that the thing I said was wrong, that everybody disagreed with me. Rather than holding on to that, that's the biggest piece of advice I go back and give myself and say, you don't know anything. You think you're so smart because you got into Yale. You don't know anything. You don't know. You think you know why people do what they do. You think you know what these businesses are. You think you understand economics and history. You know so much because you won all these competitions in high school. You don't know anything. Everyone you meet, everyone, no matter what job they do, ask them, what do you do? Why? How does that work? Tell me more about that. What interests you about it? What are the pros and cons? What are the risks? What are the opportunities? What do you see happening in the future? Why are things like that for everybody? Whether they're a, a nurse or a teacher or an entrepreneur or an investor, whenever you get that opportunity, talk to people who are outside your realm of experience, ask them what and why and how, and don't pretend like, oh, I know all about investment banking. <laughs> yeah, I've read about Goldman Sachs. You know, I know how it works. I know what it is. Josh, that is such great advice. And I can just say from my own life, what I would add to that is find mentors, ask people to be your mentor. I actually did what you're talking about in terms of faking it in various jobs, as so many of us do when we're in different industries or in jobs that challenge us. I was afraid to say I didn't know and to go to somebody who was more seasoned and say, gosh, I'd really love to get your advice because I'm feeling a little insecure here or I just don't really understand this. Would you be kind enough to maybe take me under your wing? And I thought I was faking it well, which I probably wasn't. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I think that is just such wonderful advice. And what our Time for Coffee listeners don't know is that we have just had the marathon of all marathon interviews here. <laughs> Josh has just spent two and a half hours of his time with us this morning. And obviously, this is going to be edited somewhat. But I want to say, Josh, you are such an extraordinary man. And gifted in so many ways. I want to thank you so much for making time for a very, 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 very long coffee today <laughs> with me and the Time for Coffee community. I wish you and your colleagues at Source Water continued success. You obviously have an incredible amount of grit, and I know 
that you are going to continue to build this online marketplace and it is going to just exceed expectations. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.